So tonight's reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. This can be found on your Bibles on page 690. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell the the people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pete. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your call on our lives. We thank you for this remarkable experience and truth at the core of our Christian walk, that you call us to faith in Jesus, and you call us into life, lives of service. We pray this evening you will help us to understand this with a, a new depth and with a new sense of its personal significance for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, uh, I want to talk about this passage, obviously. Uh, At the heart of the sermon, also, I want to to illustrate the theme of this uh, this evening, the theme of Courageous Mission, by inviting three members of our church who have been involved in some quite cutting-edge mission engagement uh, in different parts of the world to share briefly about their experience um, and in that way to provide windows into what Christian mission looks like. We may not serve in places uh, around the world that we will hear about this evening, but my point is this really, that they serve as windows that illustrate and perhaps enable us to see more clearly what uh, a church in mission and people in mission can look like in any society and to apply it to our own uh, situation in Britain uh, as a result. I think often situations around the world uh, give us a fresh insight into our, into our own lives and our own situation. Uh, the three people will be Sophie, Sophie Wilkinson, who's been in Hong Kong for a number of months, and Amy, Amy Jones, who's um, been working with Mercy Ships um, 
in Madagascar most recently, but in other parts around Africa. And then Tim Coleman, who is not able to be with us today, but he prepared specially for, for us today uh, a short video about uh, an African evangelist he met. And we'll hear those three stories uh, at the center of my sermon. Um, you may just be relieved to know that as a result, I'm trying to keep my words rather brief. That's just, that would need, you would need to know that, I think. The opening words of this chapter. Famous words, actually, but uh, ones we pass over. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. The opening words of, of chapter 6. The thrust of this story, the pattern of this story, is, is, is simple and profound. It goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah himself went into the temple of the Lord. In the temple of the Lord, he was overwhelmed by the glory of God and of his own unworthiness. And God called him to a costly ministry of proclamation. That's the outline of the story. That's its simplicity, but also its profundity. But why now? Why does Isaiah have this experience at this particular moment? Why is it significant that he says to us, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I had this experience? Now, that phrase actually signaled to us, signals to us that Uzziah, when this happened, was not actually dead. He was dying. If he had already died, the phrase used here would have been, in the first year of King Jotham, who was his son, in the first year of King Jotham, I saw the Lord. But he doesn't say that. He says, it's in the year that Uzziah died. So there's something about that moment in, in Judah's history, that, that historical moment that's significant for Isaiah. What might it be? Well, Uzziah had been one of Judah's better kings, in fact, a very good king. He'd reigned for a good number of years, more than 40 years. He'd been uh, a very successful and popular king politically and uh, militarily. He'd had good success, and he was one of Israel's, uh, uh, Judah's um, most famous and renowned kings and there are a number of indications uh, that for Isaiah he was a figure to be respected and, re and revered. Uh, King Uzziah was a man to respect. But there was a problem with Uzziah. Um, partway through his reign, uh, rather inflated by his success, um, he decided that he should lead the nation in a religious sense, in a spiritual sense as well. And he went into the temple and he tried to take over the role of the priests in the burning of incense uh, to, to the praise of God in the temple. And the priests resisted him and he had to retreat in defeat. And uh, the book of Chronicles records that as a result of that, as a uh, punishment from God for that, he was afflicted with leprosy. Leprosy, uh, a contagious skin disease different to the, uh, the disease that, we, that is commonly known as leprosy today. As a result of that, because it was an infectious disease, he spent the rest of his reign uh, living in seclusion, in isolation from everyone else. Um, he, he lived as a leper, in biblical language, in separation from the community at large. So the end of his reign was rather tragic in a way uh, in that his arrogance 
um, had had this uh, striking penalty, striking judgment inflicted upon it, and he was now isolated from his people. He was on the fringes, and his political power was, was fading away uh, through his inability to exercise uh, authority and leadership amongst the nation. So it was, in that sense, a, a time of uncertainty, a time of confusion, a time of bewilderment in Israel as they tried to make it through with a king who was uh, locked away, who was living in medical isolation. And at this point, uh, he was approaching death. So they were on several fronts, uh, insecurity and uncertainty in the kingdom of Judah. Internationally, the background was also very worrying and, uh, and insecure, in that this was a period in which the Assyrian Empire was on the rise, uh, characterized by, uh, evident from many aspects of history, incredible brutality and cruelty. And in subsequent years, they would overwhelm the northern kingdom of, of Israel and destroy it completely so that its people were scattered and were no longer uh, a community at all. So Isaiah is signaling by this simple reference that he went into the temple at a time of deep insecurity, deep uncertainty, the future unknown, um, his uh, Uzziah's son, in fact, came to the throne and himself proved to be a successful king. But the point here is that for Isaiah, this was a time of great uncertainty as he went into the, into the temple. He had there a life-changing experience. He had in the house of God uh, a, a window into what really happens when God's people gather in worship. He had been in the temple doubtless countless times and had never had this experience, never had this window into what was really happening. He had seen the priests go about their business. He had seen the incense burnt. He had seen the incense rise, symbolic of the prayers of the people uh, rising to God. He'd seen the sacrifices. He had been part of the worship. He had sung the songs. This time, he saw behind it. And by God's grace and goodness, he saw the majesty of God, the one who was worshipped in that place. And it became for him not any longer simply the temple in Jerusalem, but the throne room of God himself. And as Isaiah records this uh, encounter, he, he uses words right on the fringe of our comprehension and imagination about seeing the Lord high, lifted up in his splendor, surrounded by angels uh, in, their, in their glory and splendor, uh, wings everywhere, uh, glory, and a great cry of uh, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It was a transforming moment for him. Let's just hold that for a moment. I don't know if you've had an experience that in any way reflects that. I have actually in my life had just a small number of moments when in a context of worship like this, by God's goodness, 
I wasn't expecting it, I wasn't looking for it, but somehow I was able to see behind the actual activities of the moment. Yes, the clergy were doing their thing, so-and-so was preaching, we were singing hymns, we were doing whatever we were doing. But extraordinarily, in one moment, I had eyes to see what was really happening there, and the presence of God was palpable and real for me. I haven't had many such experiences, but I've had some that have been, one or two that have been really quite transforming upon my life. We don't need them. They are not necessary for Christian discipleship. They are not a necessary part of Christian experience. They are God's gift sometimes, and you may have had such moments. But even if we don't have that kind of uh, palpable encounter in that kind of way, it is good for us constantly to remember that that is the truth. That is the truth of what is happening when we gather like this in praise of Jesus singing songs of praise, praying to him, perhaps breaking bread and drinking wine in memory of Jesus. We are in the presence, we are in the throne room of God, and we are before him in his holiness and majesty. Whether we have some uh, visionary connection with that or not, that's what happens when we gather. The Orthodox Church has a very powerful way of understanding this. They, they talk about uh, the worship of God continuing always, uh, day and night, continually through the whole of eternity. And when we meet together in, in, in church, we are just for a moment plugging into it. We are just for a moment connecting with it. But it continues all the time, uh, which I find a very helpful picture of how Christian worship works. I'm going to stop there for the moment, and we'll come back to Isaiah in conclusion. Um, I'd like to uh, invite Sophie to come, first of all, um, and join me. She spoke this morning. Since then, you've had a birthday party. <laughs> right. Um, thank you for coming back and joining us. Um, Sophie has been in Hong Kong for a number of months, and I'm going to invite her now just to say a little bit uh, about Courageous Mission in the context that mm. you... You were there. Thank yeah. you. Um, so I was in Hong Kong for eight months, and I just got back like a month ago. Um, and actually, I just wanted to share about how the ministry that I was involved with started um, with a lady called Jackie Pullinger, who I'm sure many of you have heard of. Um, Jackie actually felt God call her to be a missionary when she was five years old, so quite young. And, um, and until the age of 22, was praying to God, where, where are you sending me? Um, until at 22 she got on a boat which went around the whole world and she just prayed at every stop um, asking God whether it was here that he wanted to send her um, and when she reached Hong Kong she knew that that was the place where he was calling her and so she got off the boat with no money and no knowledge of speaking Chinese or anything like that but she knew that God was with her and um, she had so much courage and um, God led her into the walled city in Hong Kong which the best way to describe it was um, it's like a high-rise slum. It's, it was the center of crime and drugs, prostitution, illegal businesses. Um, not a great place, and even the police avoided going in. Um, and Jackie went in as a 22-year-old woman, um, just in there knowing that Jesus was with her, with her mission just to spread his love and just to love people. 
Um, and she went in with such confidence in, in the gospel and she was preaching the gospel. And um, as her Chinese improved and as she just had such confidence in what she was saying, she saw amazing healings of guys coming off drugs painlessly and um, coming to know Jesus and so many broken people being saved and having their lives completely turned around. Um, and just one example of where she faced opposition, um, she definitely wasn't easy sailing. She had people um, against her in it. And one time, um, a gang crashed her, um, trashed her youth center, which she'd set up for young boys in gangs. And um, one of the other gangs trashed it. And um, the main triad leader in Hong Kong called Goko, he, um, he'd seen her and he was actually quite impressed at her because unlike many other missionaries, she'd stayed by that point for four years. And he was quite impressed at the way that men came off drugs when they, when they got to know Jesus, even though he didn't necessarily acknowledge that was what was going on there. But he sent a man called Winston to go and protect her after her youth club had been trashed. And, and Jackie said that she didn't actually want it. She didn't need a bodyguard because she had Jesus and she, she knew that she was protected by him. But Winston came every night anyway. And um, after a little while, Jackie invited Winston in and said, you know, you can know Jesus too. Would you like to? And he said, well, I'd, I'd like to, but I can't because I'm, I'm addicted to opium. And so my addiction will stop me from believing. And Jackie just shared the gospel again with him with such courage and confidence that Jesus can get him off drugs, but also keep him off and, um, and completely give him a new life. And so it's pretty, it's a opportunity too good to miss so Winston Winston thought he'd give it a go and ask God if if he could change his life and so he took himself off by himself and just asked God if you're real please heal me and um please give me a new life and Winston had never prayed before and never knew what praying in tongues was but he actually started to pray in tongues and pray in tongues for about an hour and after that hour Winston had completely painlessly withdrawn from opium and um, has never gone back. And that was 50 years ago when Jackie first went to the Walled City. Um, Winston was one of the people that I saw every day in Hong Kong and just uh, surrounded by these stories in Hong Kong was amazing. And um, he's now involved in praying for other guys to see similar transformations in their lives. And that's what I was able to be a part of in Hong Kong, praying for men and women to, to know Jesus and to come off drugs and um, see their lives turned around. And yeah, it was an honor to see what Jackie a surrendered life to God looks like, what 50 years of just surrendering her life to God, how, how God used her and has protected and provided for her in amazing ways. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie. A, a huge privilege you, you've had there and uh, it's, it's lovely to have you, you sharing, uh, sharing about that. Um, I'd like to invite you not to just be uh, amazed by a, an extraordinary, remarkable story, but to reflect rather on what it says about the nature of Christian witness into the world and, and how that might, be, might enlarge and enrich our own understanding of our engagement with our own uh, society. So just hold that for a moment, and I'm going to ask uh, Amy to come and speak and to tell... Hello, good evening. I quite like those sofas. A little bit too comfortable there. Um, <laughs> my name's Amy Jones, and I'm married to Ali Jones. Some of you may know Ali Jones. He sends his love. He can't be with us tonight, but he is um, currently um, at home. Oh, where's home? 
we have the first? Waha. Oh. Yes. Um, so we currently live and work and serve on the Africa Mercy. Um, that's our home at the moment, and um, it's a real privilege to do that. The Africa Mercy is a hospital ship. Um, has operating rooms and everything inside it. It's a fully functioning hospital. It's the biggest non-governmental hospital in the world. And um, what we do is we give free surgical care to um, the poorest of the poor across mainly West Africa. Um, and we've just finished uh, nearly two years in Madagascar. It's been a real privilege to serve there. And um, I have seen... We can go into the next slide. Um, thank you. I have seen some real courageous stories. In fact, I have way too many to tell in just five minutes. But um, I want to just talk to you a little bit about where I've seen courage. Um, definitely in our patients. We have um, patients that come to us from villages very, very far away, sometimes even different countries from the one that we're serving. Um, they come from war-torn areas and um, very isolated villages. A lot of the patients that we treat have very um, marked disfigurement, as you can see on Sambani there, and some of the pictures are really quite shocking. Um, these are people that are normally outcasts in their society. They're not welcome in their villages. They are kicked out of their families. Their parents won't talk to them anymore. And so the patients that we come come also with emotional challenges as well as physical ones. And so although we are a surgical ship and we are giving some of the best surgical care, we are also showing God's love to those people and telling them that they're worth something and that they're lovable and that they're beautiful and that they're human. And so our patients show great courage to actually come to us. Um, a lot of them have to sell things and, um, and that in itself um, is sometimes a courageous mission. One guy even told me that he was told by the Lord to come to the ship for healing. He had a tumor. And when we asked him to sign his consent form to say that he wanted surgery, and we asked him what he wanted from us just to confirm the operation that we were doing, he said he wanted his tumor to be taken away, but he also wanted um, spiritual healing, <laughs> which was kind of amazing that someone would be able to come from a village and tell us that that's, that's what they've been told by God to do, to come for spiritual healing and tumor to be removed. So it's kind of amazing. So our patients um, are courageous, but also um, I've seen courageous mission take place in so many other parts. Um, I'm currently um, a nurse on board, but I take part in education. I run education programs for local nurses in the communities that we serve. And this video is just a short um, clip that kind of gives an overview of what it is that we do in the local community. So we see the transformation stories of our patients. We see the before and after pictures. It's very dramatic and amazing and incredible to be a part of. But when you're talking about medical providers and healthcare structures, what, what is hope for them? It's so easy to forget how privileged we are at home. Here, people do their job with so much less. So capacity building would be helping the country build their capacity to deliver healthcare. So how can you strengthen, grow, support a health system? There's lots of components in that. 
you ask any of the nurses or any of the doctors that we work with, they became nurses and they became doctors because they want to help people. And the biggest frustration that they have is that they can't. They don't have the equipment, they don't have the materials, they don't have the expertise to be able to really help the people that are in front of them that are hurting. Our goal is to help fill in the gaps of some of their training and, and to come alongside them to help them serve their own people better. It's about giving people the skills to then take into their daily practice and build their confidence and their skills from there. Um, no time to talk about agriculture um, programs, but if you do want to know about that, then please ask me afterwards. Um, so, mission that is courageous can look very, very different. And um, it isn't just about being abroad and being in other countries, it's definitely here too. For me, it's stepping outside of your comfort zone and doing something that you would not normally do that's different from your version of normality. And um, for me, working in hospitals like you've just seen has been a real um, shift in my thinking and has been the moments where I've needed to um, drum up the most courage I can possibly manage when I'm actually just feeling very, very fearful because I'm going into an environment where I don't have resources and actually the ship has become my safe place because I know the patients that I'm going to treat, I have all the resources to be able to do so, I have medicine and dressings and everything I could possibly need but actually in the local community they really have nothing. Um, those rooms that you saw and pictures were fully functioning hospital um, rooms that are used every day and they don't have anything and so to be able to see those nurses and doctors work there every day and turn up and give a service to people that are in need is massively courageous, but also for us to go out of our comfort zone and step into a different world where we don't have the resources, but we just really want to help people that are eager for knowledge and eager to be the best healthcare professionals that they can possibly be is, um, more difficult and is our way of showing God's love to them as well as to our patients. So it's another way that we, that we serve. Um, yeah, so our patients show great courage and the nurses and doctors show great courage. Um, and sometimes we need that too, so, yeah. <laughs> Very different stories, but very similar stories in a way. They represent entirely uh, connected ways in which human beings can be restored to spiritual health and physical health, overcome addictions, be healed from life-crippling diseases, um, and yet um, drawing on uh, different resources in God's goodness, wisdom, and creation um, from the um, the medical through to prayer and, uh, and, and everything in between. Um, again, hold that in, in your mind. My invitation to you is to reflect on how do these things, how do these stories speak back into our situation and the calling of the church in our society. And finally, um, from Tim Coleman, uh, another very different story from Northern Kenya.
Do you see that bridge up ahead? I'm asked by a mission trip leader as he drives. Here I was held at gunpoint by bandits who blocked our way through. When I asked them, why are you doing this? One pointed his gun at my head and pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed. He tried a second and a third time, but the same problem. After which he hit me over the head with the gun and I lay on the ground. He then hit me with a stick while I was on the ground. Over the next hour, they took all of our money and bags and then left. I was angry, but then God spoke to me as I lay on the ground. I saw Christ the Passion. He was humbled, harassed and beaten for me. Then my spirit calmed and I surrendered. I realised my time is not yet. Well, in this one stretch of road alone, our mission leader has experienced 11 life-threatening incidences. I stare out the window, taking the arid desert landscape as we eat up the miles of the long journey. The accounts of previous dangers experienced in these regions sink in. Even now, in the car we drive in, one of the tyres has a bullet hole puncture in it that has been plugged. Undeterred by such events, our mission leader continues to visit these areas to share the gospel, and it's these places that we are heading to today. You've been doing this for 20 years. Why do you keep coming back? I ask him. And this is his reply. I've learned how to love the unlovable. The Lord put this supernatural love in me and I do not understand it fully. I sincerely know this is my call. I've tried to quit, but I can't. I've tried to reason, but then I find myself going again. Finally, I surrendered. Now this is where my friends, my life and the scattered church that I love so much is based. I'm not considering this as a missions work, but a part of my life. It's where I belong. I even own camels in this region, which makes me a nomad. I'm baptised by the community, no longer who I was, but one of them. As Jesus, being in his very nature God, yet he decided to identify himself with me and with these nomadic people. The Christian worldview is that this is a hard place, which is true, but flip the coin and it's a great place for mission. My unending joy comes when I go to this place. These people are simple people. Really, they worship God sincerely. Three weeks after I was attacked with a gun, I returned and we did mission in the village close to this part of the road for the first time. I encountered face to face one of the people who beat me and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. It was an amazing time of reconciliation. Ever since we did mission in that village, we have not been attacked on this dangerous stretch of road. I've never had a miracle gift, but I see God performing miracles here. I never knew I had a gift of healing, but I've seen God perform healing. I never thought I could command nature to obey us, but where there is no rain, we pray and rain comes. We command out demons. Witchcraft and witch doctors are scared to death when they see us. I feel like I'm walking in the pages of the New Testament. Where else could I experience these things but here? My fear is not in the field where insecurity, danger, pain and sickness like malaria are. Fear, it's in the mind, not there. And God is with us.
I decided to give God my strength and my years as a youth. I don't have money savings, but what I can, I give. So I continue to give, so long as I have strength. That's an amazing story, isn't it? A really heartwarming story. It, it brings other themes in, into the picture, themes of personal courage and personal danger overcome in order to be faithful to God's call. It's about Christian community and the power of community to heal and reconcile. Uh, there are uh, theme, further themes in that story to add to the story of Sophie and, and the story of Amy. My invitation this evening is to carry those stories with you and to continue your reflection on them. Back briefly in conclusion to our, the story of Isaiah. So we've got a background here of uncertainty, a background perhaps of fear, a background where the political outcomes and the social outcomes uh, of Judah's history are unknown and Isaiah goes into the temple. And there he has this transforming and overwhelming experience of the glory of God. But what's its impact? Its impact on him is really interesting in that it is not about exaltation and it is not about being overwhelmed in joy, though that may have been part of the experience. The decisive thing is his awareness of his own unworthiness. This is really a striking feature of this story. I am a man of unclean lips. Not only that, he's, he is aware that he doesn't only have his own unworthiness here, he carries with him his participation in the life of his nation, in the life of his people. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I am here before you, God, in my unworthiness because of who I am as a person and who I am as a member of my people. I think that's a really uh, important and powerful uh, insight for us to, to, to take on board. Isaiah is working here with uh, not only his personal journey, but he is working with the journey of his people and their history and their destiny. And he knows that God needs to act in restoration and healing of both. And he needs to be healed in both dimensions of who he is. I think at this time in our nation's history, in our situation of uh, the breakdown of leadership, uh, uncertainty about our future, the breakdown of, of relationships, the breakdown of international relationships, the possible breakdown of the structure of our own uh, united kingdom, I think we need to, in prayer, be aware of our participation in the whole story. Before the living God, before his splendor, before his glory, we come as unworthy on our own account and because we share in the history and in the destiny of our nation, our people. And the interesting thing here is that Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of people of unclean lips. And I think that emphasis on the lips is very important. And if there's one thing we've seen in recent weeks 
that is the impurity of language and the insincerity of language and sometimes the untruth of language that's been used in our society. And for Isaiah, the heart of his equipping for his new life was the purging of the lips, the cleansing of the lips, the forgiveness of the inadequacy and the failure of his speech. It was a painful purging, a painful cleansing. It was achieved by the carrying of burning coals from the altar in in vision uh, and the purging of, of his lips so that he might speak words of beauty and truth and honesty and sincerity, integrity. I think that's part of what of the journey our nation needs to be on. We need leaders who are able to speak in such a way, whose compulsion is to speak in such a way. And it needs to start with us. And our our praying and our investment in the future of our nation needs to start with our own cleansing and forgiveness and the purifying of our words and language that it may be part of our nation's future. From there, a new encounter is possible and God speaks. So in the form of a question, an invitation, who will go for us? Who will speak for us? Who will be our representative and our voice in the world? And Isaiah, having been through this grueling experience, you might call it, of a journey into the glory of God and into the deep reality of his own insufficiency is able to say, here am I, send me. I believe, all I can say is I believe about this, that we live at a very significant time in our nation's history. I have to say that this is the biggest constitutional crisis and the biggest national crisis that I have known in my lifetime. Um, That is evident to me. That seems to me to be more than adequate grounds for profound reflection and profound response uh, before God and uh, a willingness to engage my life with what I may learn through that reflection. Three things stand out for me. Uh, I mentioned these last week and I won't labor them now, but they seem to me to be really important. Um, It seems to me At the heart of what the journey we've been through, there has been a a loud cry of frustration and isolation, of marginalization and powerlessness from many of our cities and towns and rural areas. Places that as a nation we have neglected for decades and perhaps for generations. Places which need now to be heard and for response to happen. Will they be heard at the political level? We shall see. Will they be heard by our churches, churches in their own localities, churches far away, like perhaps like ourselves, though Guildford has its own uh, deep needs? Against that is the, uh, on, alongside that is the, the situations that for the moment we have allowed ourselves to forget. But whilst we have been absorbed with our own personal, our own national story, the uh, upheaval in our world continues with the uh, endless war in uh, the Middle East, 
newspaper report I saw yesterday that spoke of the, the danger of permanent war in, in the Middle East and of the huge scale of migration, human migration across our world. We still have responsibility in our world to respond with wisdom and courtesy, compassion and welcome. And the third thing is this, and it comes home to me more and more with power, that this is a moment for really possessing what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in the world. And to be the church of Jesus Christ in the world is to know that we are his body in the world. And that means that we are one with a fellowship that goes right across our globe. And that whatever uh, fragmentation and conflict and misunderstanding happens between nations and communities in our world, the Church of Jesus Christ, by its identity, is international, multicultural, multilingual, and is by its very DNA uh, a coming together of people of every different kind and color and language. Broken, failing, failing, sinful, but people who have been brought together by God and are in the process of being restored and discovering what it is to be a community made up in that kind of way. And this means to me that the, the church of Jesus Christ is a paradigm, is a model, is to be in the world the image of the kind of community God wishes to build which is not exclusive, narrow, and inward-looking, but is always inclusive and welcoming and crosses the boundaries of culture and language and brings people together to find, to find a new kind of human community and purpose together. And such a community can serve the world. Such a community can live lives of welcome and compassion and mercy. I think I see this now with a clarity I haven't seen before, and I believe it is related to the upheaval of our time. It has always been so. This has always been the character of the church of Jesus Christ. But it seems to me that this is the moment in which that needs to be grasped, held, understood, and lived out. That we might be people of clean lips. That we might demonstrate what it is to be a people of integrity and honesty in speech and life and that we can welcome people into the life of Christ uh, without discrimination, without distinction. Here am I, send me, is the response God looks for. I'm going to ask uh, our band to come. We're going to sing in conclusion in just a moment. But before we do so, uh, I'd like us to take some moments of, of quiet just to absorb and reflect on the things we've heard this evening. So first of all, let's, let's keep a moment of, of quiet, and then I'll invite you to just pray quietly yourself in, 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 on various fronts. Let's give thanks to God and pray for Jackie Pullinger in Hong Kong, 50 years of service there, and those who work with her, those whose lives have been touched profoundly and changed, and their ministry. Let's pray for her. 
And let's pray for those rural health workers of which Amy spoke, struggling to bring health and wholeness to people with such desperately limited resources. May God give them grace and courage and strength and through mercy ships and other channels, resource them to care for their people. And let's pray for that remarkable evangelist in northern Kenya, his courage and his willing to be immersed in the life of people who need the gospel and to become one of them. May God bless him, protect him, keep him. And let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for its emerging new leadership for the journey it is set out upon. And let's pray for the church in our country and for our own church here at St. Saviour's, that in these times of confusion and bewilderment and change and uncertainty, we may truly be the church of Jesus Christ, welcoming, inclusive, crossing frontiers, living lives of compassion and service, uh, illustrating the life of God and the person of Jesus.